Hello yet again, and welcome to the Insanely Dangerous Retro Pod Show. Size doesn't matter, it's what you do with it. Yes, well, I mean, I'm off now because I've got to go and scream. Absolutely garbage. Paulie Shaw is somebody I don't really give a fuck about. He did kick me off the arse! Nice, nice argument there. Oh, shut up. Shut up, you Oh, there's a finger. I, I almost urinated. Tune in next week because I just can't stop loving you guys. It's the Batman jeans. No more Andy Hinchcliffe. <laughs> I don't know. Why. I don't know. <laughs> Stoner chicks. We're four friends who met through comedy and bonded through weed. I'm Grace Penzel. I'm Kayla Teal. I'm Stephanie Thompson. I'm Phoebe Richards. If you love smoking weed and laughing with your friends, this podcast is for you. Weekly episodes will drop on Fridays starting April 2nd. So subscribe now to Stoner Chicks wherever you get your podcasts. Coming to your favorite podcatcher soon. This is the Nostal Junk Podcast, where one person's junk is another person's childhood. I'm Matt McGraw. And I'm Kyle Smith. Join us as we take a deep dive into your pop culture consciousness. Thank you for tuning in and listening to our very first episode. An important question you might have is, what is Nostal Junk? Well, it is the discussion of being nostalgic, because nostalgia exists for everyone, and everyone has very unique nostalgic moments, it's those moments that take us back in time when we first encountered those moments. Another major part of the Nostalgunk podcast is being connected to other Nostalgunk heads on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can follow us at Pod. So, connect with us and start a discussion. Let us know what your favorite nostalgic moments are to you. Movies, music, etc. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, I remember when you first came to me with this idea. Uh, the idea to me, nostalgic means exactly those moments that you remember the most from growing up. The feelings you got, the the smells that you remember, The if you were scared, if you laughed, if you cried, exhilarated, right? So it's... Um, the special things that are kind of burned into your brain from a very young age, uh, like probably through childhood, through your teenage years, like, the, you know, the most formative years. Um, and what's funny about the title, I remember when you first told me the title, what it kind of reminded me of was, you know, as you look back on those things that you remembered as a kid or as a teen, they might not still hold up. Uh, they might not be as strong as and maybe you thought they were at the time, but they're still special to you and you'll still love them forever and cherish those memories forever. Uh, and that's nostalgia to me. Uh, so yeah, I'm pretty excited. I think it's, I think it's going to be good. You know, we've been friends for a while. We kind of enjoy the same things. We kind of have these spirited conversations anyway, so we might as well put them on tape. Uh, all right. So and here we go. So the first, uh, first episode, we're going to talk about movies. Um, movies. I love movies the most, probably out of any medium. Uh, Matt, do you remember the first movie you saw in a movie theater? 1989, Batman. 
Oh. The memory burn that I have is, and I was actually kind of terrified of it for a long time, was Jack Nicholson's new Joker hand emerging through the surface of the chemicals at Axis Chemicals. That was actually pretty scary. And being four, four and a half when I saw that, yeah, man, that was uh, that was a big deal to me. But I can put myself back in that theater seat in the dark with Jack Nicholson's Joker hand, my first theater experience. That Joker hand is strong. <laughs> but yeah, that's a good one. Uh, and it's funny that you said you were about four, four and a half, because we, we, there is like a four, five year, I think, difference in our age. And so what's funny about that is my movie memory... Also, it's the almost the exact age. I think I was four, maybe five. I forget. Actually, no, I think I was definitely four because my movie memory is from uh, Steven Spielberg's E.T., the first movie I remember seeing in a theater. And we went with a group of, I think I was in a YMCA group or a daycare group or something. And we went as a big group. We went to our local theater. I was living in Sackville, New Brunswick at the time. And... uh when I look back on it now, I remember the, the specific scene that I remember is when Elliot first sees E.T. hears something in his backyard. He leaves his house with his flashlight. It's really dark and it's right creepy and he's creeping back to the shed and you hear like little mumblings. And it's and as a kid, what's great about E.T. is that Steven Spielberg puts you in the perspective of the kid at all times, the adults in the movie are like the bad guys. You only really see from the waist down. Uh, every shot is kind of from Elliot's perspective, his height. And what's hilarious is I remember when E.T. jumps out of the bushes and Elliot just gets terrified. And E.T. is even terrified, too, because he's the same thing. But I, I was so scared. <laughs> I was so scared as a little kid in that theater. Um I was feeling exactly what Elliot was feeling. And that, that is a movie memory that is forever burned in my brain. Uh, when E.T. first jumps out at Elliot, uh, in E.T. I have many memories of watching E.T. All of them sad because that movie for a long time, I couldn't get through without bawling by the end of. So that's what nostalgia junk is. Just a couple of friends riffing off of each other's nostalgia. So, Sit back and relax and listen to our top five movies. I think it was called Neon Magazine. I don't even think that magazine exists anymore, but there was a list. It was 90 movies you need to see before you die or oh, something. Yeah. And that just goes, I don't know what, like, I just, I, it was almost like a checklist. Yeah, you know, I wanted to see every movie. It was a lot of movies I haven't heard of, a lot of movies that I had heard of. I don't know, man. I just love this. So movie, this movie list is kind of weird because there's so many movies, right? Like, you can yep. just pull from so many things. Like, are you going for, like, childhood, super childhood nostalgia or maybe movies that kind of mean the most to you because i know my list isn't what i consider the greatest movies ever made like an afi type list does the influence of what's good impact your preference do you hide something that you liked in your past that meant something to you from a long time ago but mm. maybe not mean something to you now mm -hmm. but it's a part of 
your development um, maybe an appreciation of something else. You know, maybe you listen to one album and one band at one point in your life that you might be embarrassed to say now that you listen to. But if it wasn't for that band, you might not have gotten into the other bands that you're proud to say define you in that love of that genre. Yeah, that's interesting. Because, I mean, there's definitely that. I think it's. I think regardless, the 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 list should reflect your genuine top. Does it still mean something to you now? Well, it's interesting that you put it that way because my number two is my gateway film. Like in terms of right. gateway to the movies as I know them now. Like, and this is going back twenty years at this point. But like, there was movies before when I was little. You know, different kind of family friendly. Maybe the kids' movies and you know what I thought were just like you know the top forty kind of movies that everybody liked to watch. <clears throat> then there was this movie, which I will talk about in a sec, but it was a very big movie, but it almost, ex- it gave me a, it broadened my view of what a movie could do, I guess. And I really started to understand what movies were really about and going forward. Um, m- you know, my love of movies changed. So I, so the pop, like the, the popular movies, the big hit movies, they do play a part. And what people say are classic movies, they're going to play a part in, um, you know, shaping your kind of movie landscape, sure. I guess, as it was. Yep. All right. Well, why don't you start us off? All right. So my number five. So speaking of super big hit movies, um, I'm, I'm just huge into horror. I've always been huge into horror. And one of the greatest horror movies of all time is John Carpenter's Halloween. We all know this. This is a movie that everyone just knows. But my number five, and this goes back, I can just still remember me and my buddy, Matt, not this Matt, not you, Matt, no, another Matt, sitting in his basement, and he just had a huge VHS collection, you know, in the dark, and maybe, you know, we were a little too young to be watching it, but John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13, to me, I don't know, there's just a dirtiness to it, there's a grittiness to it. Um, I, and I'm just, I love the grindhouse kind of film experience. Uh, and it's just to, to me, Assault on Precinct 13 is a tight, um, super effective siege movie, even like with a little hint of Night of the Living Dead in there. You know, like there's, if you don't know what the movie's about, uh, there is a policeman, his first day on the job in a new city, he gets assigned to a, uh, a precinct that is kind of going under. It's kind of like a, a grunt type. Like it's, you know, it's not a job that anybody, you know, he wants to be on the streets, like, you know, fighting crime, but this uh, police station is going to be closing down. He gets assigned to it on the, at the same time. There's a death row inmate uh, named Napoleon Wilson who gets bust in There's street gang called street thunder that is waging a war on the cops. And they all find themselves together on this one fateful night. And, uh, the assault ensues and it's just a super tight 90 minutes, just ultra violence, um, bad guys and good guys teaming up to fight an even, you know, bigger kind of bad. And, uh, I just, I don't know to me, the, just the grindhouse aesthetic means a lot to me. That movie always meant a lot to me. Uh, and it's still entertaining to this day. I think you can find it on shutter, uh, at least last time I checked, but so yeah, my number five assault on precinct 13. I think what you mean to say is, I think you can find it in your movie library if you're a true movie fan. <laughs> Actually, you know what? I, man, I, I got rid of a lot of my movies. Like once streaming took over, you know what yeah. I mean? I just, I still have, a, I have a huge box in my closet of VHS 
I don't think assaults in there, but, um, but yeah, I mean, they're just sitting on my closet because they're VHS and all right. Number five for you. Number five. Ghostbusters. Oh, that's a good one. I'm actually kind of sad that it's number five and not closer to the top because if you asked five-year-old me, it would be the greatest movie ever Hands made. down. Hands down. But Ghostbusters is fantastic. We, we all know that in this age group. Ghostbusters is great. Uh, you could be, that's a, real, that's a real gateway movie into all genres of movie. There's comedy, there's romance, there's horror, there's sci-fi, everything. That movie covers everything. And the cast it's pretty great. The Movies That Made Us series on Netflix did a fantastic making of. Um, and I think these are more more accurate of a making of as opposed to just some footage behind the scenes. But um, the business side of making movies. Okay. It started with a script that involved uh, John Belushi, Eddie Murphy, and Dan Aykroyd. They were going to be the three Ghostbusters. Wow. Didn't know that. But John passed away and uh, evidently it was when Dan was actually writing a line for him and he had passed away and he'd get the news um, during that time period there was enough of a, a lull that that was right during the um, the rise of Eddie Murphy so he kind of didn't need to be second fiddle to anybody definitely not he I mean we all know the the comedic genius of Eddie Murphy during the 80s but in any case um you got the soundtrack, you've got the gadgets, um, to quote Bill Murray from the movie. The franchise rights alone will make us rich beyond our wildest dreams. <laughs> That's amazing. And it's so meta because that ended up being such a thing for them. You talked about like a perfect cast. Um, what about like just the chemistry like of the, the main group of ghosts? I think Bill Murray can probably have good chemistry with anybody. Like, it seems like his, just the way he is with, with anybody on screen is just so much fun to watch. And even the supporting cast of Ghostbusters, like Rick Moranis and Sigourney Weaver, just have so many memorable moments. Like, especially to me, Rick Moranis is just so funny in that movie. But that was supposed to be John Candy. Really? I didn't know that. He didn't like the character. Wow. So both of them from Second City TV, they both had their own version of playing Louis Tully. And uh, Rick already had had it in the bag. Apparently, when he came in, the version that he had in his mind to play was exactly how we saw Louis Tully. So um, it's 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 weird to hear what it could have been, but it's hard to say that it would have been different. It's true. I mean, you, I mean that can, that goes with so many things. Like, obviously, I mean that just makes me think of what would Metallica have sounded like with Cliff Burton if he was still alive. It, you know, you can't, you'll never know. Stop. Well, they wouldn't have fucking wrote load or reload. <laughs> they they might have, Matt. They might have. No, no, they probably didn't. They probably wouldn't have. They would have went. But sometimes, like, it's just best not to think about those things. You know, we have Rick Moranis and Ghostbusters. We don't need to think about what it would have been like if John Candy was. You know. Sure. All right. Moving on to number four, and just looking at my list, I'm just realizing that uh, this is just another continuation of my kind of obvious. I, I notice a trend of weird kind of grindhousey, dirty, gritty, seedy movies. I guess you could call it. Uh, and th- now I'm thinking of when I was working at Blockbuster. Remember Blockbuster Video, Matt? You remember that thing? Well, <clears throat> maybe this is something we can revisit at a later date. But the dynamic of going to rent a movie. Was so much fun as a kid. Oh, I miss it. 
So one of my favorite things about working at Blockbuster Video was we had free rentals as employees. It was the greatest thing. I think by the end of my time there, I had amassed like almost, I think, 300 rentals, just free movie. I would just every shift I would come home with like two movies. Um, and this was one of those movies where, um, you know, you're exactly you're browsing. You don't know what you're looking for, but, you know, you have an idea of maybe what you might be interested in. Uh, and then I see this box and it has Harvey Keitel pointing a gun at the camera. And there's a quote by Roger Ebert that says one of the greatest acting performance uh, on screen or something like I forget exactly how it was worded. Um, so I picked it up and I watched Abel Ferreira's Bad Lieutenant. And that movie is insane. Like if you haven't seen Bad Lieutenant and you want to see a huge kind of megastar just really just not even it's like he just didn't care it, it's almost like he i don't know like he he broke that wall of not even he doesn't even realize he's an actor or something like it's just um a force of nature type movie where you you're thrust into the story there's no real there's kind of a plot there's a loose gambling plot where he's getting in way too deep with some people and he makes bad bets that keep going bad but the movie is just we're placed in the center of New York City, and there's this cop that has obviously been running rampant for, who knows, 20 years? Who knows? He knows all the ins and outs of, you know, how to just be pretty much the most corrupt cop you've ever seen, one of the most corrupt cops you've ever seen on screen. The movie is wild. Um, it's dirty. It's gritty. Um, he just, there's a lot of drugs, a lot of sex, a lot of violence. Um, but it obviously, oddly enough, it does end on, somewhat of kind of a moral redemption you know he kind of makes amends this isn't like spoilery at all but um it's just a great great ending one of the greatest performances you'll ever see from harvey Keitel. uh and it's just bonkers man that movie bad lieutenant yeah. i've honestly never heard of that one what yeah all right well my chalk, uh... chalk it up and put it on the list yeah <laughs> Yeah, I think that's what we'll have to do between us if there's uh if there's something that either one of us should see. We will uh we'll make sure that we uh sit down and and do a watch along with yeah. each other. Also, if you have any suggestions for us, definitely hit us up on all of our social mediums at uh Junk Pod. That's uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And that's it for that plug. Anyway. Good um, job. Good job on the plug. Thank you. Number four, proud to say, was the Goonies. Oh, wow. Okay, good. Yeah. So when I was, I don't know, as, as, as early as I can remember, um, being born in 85, when you would tape a movie off of TV, the first and only version that exists in my memory of Goonies uh, was taped from ASN. That was Channel 7. <laughs> yep. Back in the day, which it had the logo in the bottom corner. And to this day, I cannot forget um, the the feeling of excitement and the adventure. So like, yeah, I get you. Yeah. You know, like pure, it had, pure adventure. Yeah. 
there's been so many lead children roles as of late that definitely borrow from films like the Goonies. For instance, Stranger Things. Like, you cannot have Stranger Things without the Goonies. Nope. They're after the same thing. You know, like, they're connecting to an audience that, that at one point, we were all a, a child. So either you're a child watching it, or you are an adult thinking like a child watching it. Yeah, exactly. And you're, you're fulfilling those moments in your experience when you're watching it. And, and when done right, your heartbeat races, you get excited, you get sad, like you get all of the same emotions, and you end up walking away feeling pretty good, even when it's been really intense, because you kind of have that moment of release. It's that escapism as an adult that you need every once in a while. Man, it's crazy you, you put it that way. I've never even thought about it that way. But yeah, you're right. The Goonies lets you be a kid again when you watch it. That's the feeling you get. I'm I'm going to be 35 in May and I am chunk now <laughs> physically. If you want me to do the truffle shuffle, I'll you're, show you how. You're on it. Yeah. Teach you how to Dougie. <laughs> that's the new truffle shuffle? Well, that's definitely not new, but that shows that I'm 35 and I don't know what's cool. <laughs> Is flossing still cool because I I can't get my um, the front arm past my gut when I do it. I, I honestly, I don't even know. I can't do it. I don't know how to floss. People have tried. I've tried to do it in front of people. It just doesn't. I can't do it. Very in-depth. Anyway, hit us up. All right. So looking at my list now, I'm realizing we might have went in different directions, but that's okay. You're going from more of a maybe a little childhood standpoint. I'm going from like my teenage. I'm a little, I'm a teen. Like I'm used, you're 35. I'm pushing 40, which is crazy. So yeah, I'm, I'm in that, I'm the movies that kind of shaped me from age, let's say, let's say age 13 to 16. I think that's where my list lies. You know what I mean? But that's cool. You know, that's still 20 something years ago. So yeah, my number three. So now we're getting, now we're getting into the big guns. Now we're getting into the ones that everybody knows. All right. Load up. You ready for this one? So my favorite movie genre is horror. It's always been horror. I can remember. I think when I was three watching Michael Jackson's thriller in a shopping mall and being just being so scared, you know, just a little scared little kid. But I think honestly, I think that's like what started me off on the path to horror. Um, and so in my blockbuster days, once again, just watching everything I could watching as much horror as I could came across this box. And again, the quote, it's like the pictures and the quotes on the front of the covers is what grabs you as a horror fan. And there's a quote by Rex Reed saying the most terrifying movie experience or something you'll ever have. And I watched it. And this is to me, the alpha, the Omega of horror films. There will never be another like it. It's the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I mean, everybody knows the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but that movie is like a descent into hell. Like it's madness. It's pure madness on camera. It's a nightmare, like created like the documentary kind of aesthetic that makes you feel like you're just kind of like a, you're watching, you know, a documentary, I guess, like some of the shots, especially like at the start, they're kind of from far away in the grass. You're like watching people in the distance. There's kind of something very odd about it. It's, you know, it's not very stylish and, and notoriously there's not a lot of blood, you know, but it's, I think just the vision of the worst possible scenario that any group of kids could find themselves in is in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You have one of the most iconic movie villains of all time, a man, a mentally challenged man 
that wears human skin on his face and chase and <laughs> carves people up with a chainsaw so he can cook them and eat them. <laughs> I mean, it's to me, it's the greatest horror movie ever made. It will always be my favorite horror movie. I think that that's that's a great entry. Um, that's a movie on a very small budget with very little gore, given the title and the legacy and the impact that it left on people. It didn't need much. Mm-mm. That's yeah. very, very cool. That's awesome. So, yeah. Um, I mean, if, if, if we do a horror movie list podcast in the future... I mean, if, spoiler, come on. spoiler alert, that's going to be my number one. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but today it's number three. All right, fine. Number three for me. Um, so there is a period where I probably watch movies that I shouldn't have. <laughs> As we all have. Right. So my number three is The Shining. Mm. And I was, I think it was in grade one. And I, and I do remember... Um, there were two movies that I watched during that time period and I went to school immediately after that weekend to tell the whole class about whatever movie I saw. So um, there were two movies. So it was The Shining and Psycho, the original. Uh, not the Vince Vaughn remake. <laughs> the shot-by-shot remake that somehow managed to be just completely terrible. Which included... <laughs> Rob Zombie playing at the car lot. What? Yeah. I miss, I man, I miss that. Living Dead Girls playing at the car lot. Are you serious? Yeah. Man, I miss that. But yet, to speak like you're 1960, with Rob Zombie playing in the background <laughs> is totally fine. Thanks, Gus Van Zandt. Um, but anyway, so, yeah, The Shining. Um, I'm in my grandparents' basement in the valley, I'm watching with my dad, and... I think that this is the coolest movie I've ever seen because I can't breathe. I've held my breath pretty well the entirety of the film. Um, and a face that has been burned in my memory still to this day and almost 35, I still channel every once in a while when like uh, a sense of dread comes over me is Danny's shocked face that gets cut in to moments when he's shining, like the blood coming out of the elevators where his mouth is just wide open. Amazing. That, that is truly a jump scare without any cue. Wow. You're right. Um, because it's so shocking to see a child in terror and fear, almost in that paralysis of fear that you experience and want to experience as a fan of, um, you know, that kind of dread when you're watching something. So um, being, you know, probably pretty close to Danny's age in the film, um, I was just totally smitten with this uh, with this style of film. And uh, that was my that was definitely my my entry into horror um, in terms of like a, a I want to be scared. Like Ghostbusters had the effects. Um, they had, you know, the the Hellhounds or Terror Dogs, I guess they called them. Like Zool was pretty pretty cool looking. That wasn't as scary as looking at Danny reacting to something that he's seeing that he shouldn't be seeing, which is almost where I am on the couch watching this movie. I shouldn't be seeing this movie, <laughs> and I have the same look on my face. 
And still to this day, like, I remember that ending, seeing Jack in uh, a picture from the past on the wall of the hotel, you know, suggesting that that he was a ghost all along or... Yeah, you know, it's it's open to interpretation. Well, we all know that there's enough interpretations of (laughs) The Shining to go around. Room 237. (laughs) How dare we just assume that maybe it's just the ghost of our past is what tries to kill us, right? Uh, but in any case, The Shining. Nice. I know what you just made me realize about the um, Danny uh, and the shock terror face and the jump and the jump cuts to the different visions. It's almost like the movie is make he can't he he can't control what he, what he's seeing in that moment. That's why he's so terrified. They're just it's like an assault on his senses because of The Shining. But the movie's doing that to us as well. Yeah, that's kind of what makes him. Uh, it's kind of interesting how that makes it terrifying to watch because. We have no control over what we're seeing. We're forced to watch the elevator with the blood and the dead twins in the hallway. Like it's kind of that's an interesting way to look at it. I never thought about it that way. I don't. I don't think Kubrick was a was a horror director. I just think that Kubrick knew that no matter what content he was feeding you, there's a relationship between the content of what he's telling you in a story and what you were experiencing as a viewer. Mm-hmm. And talk about a director style being. Like there, I cannot think of a horror movie where a a director's personal style was more suited to the material than Kubrick's framing, the way he shoots things and the shining, you know, the look of the shining is so signature to the movie, but that's Kubrick, like the long hallways, the big rooms, the, just the square kind of setups he always does. You know, it just makes the movie more claustrophobic and all the more effective. Wow claustrophobic for sure anyway there you go (laughs) the movie's about claustrophobia literally um all right my number two um i mentioned this before that my number two is going to be the movie that got me into movies and you know when i i think i might have even been i think this movie came out in 94 so i was 14 maybe i was 15 and my dad let me watch this movie maybe he should again maybe he shouldn't have but he did uh and that's the movie that made me, this is the movie that made me look at movies differently. And I think a lot of people's probably looked at movies differently after this. It's Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. I mean, we all know Pulp Fiction. It's one of the greatest movies ever made. It's so good. Um, but it means a lot to me just because, you know, up until that point, I was, you know, maybe just, the, you know, a kind of casual movie viewer and just watching, never really thinking about movies as I watched, never really putting too much more thought into the immediate kind of, um, gratification i guess you'd get from a movie but man pulp fiction the way it moves through timelines the characters the stories the moments like mm. so many iconic movie moments were like even just something as simple as the dance off at jack rabbit slims but 100%. then but then you got um when you know when uma thurman gets in trouble with the heroine and they got to go to lance's house to you know with the adrenaline shot to the heart with the needle like just amazing movie so many great moments uh an amazing movie i could watch it i watch it every year but i could just probably watch it every month um but yeah the movie that got me into movies pulp fiction the dance off funny that you bring that up so today i'm in the mall and i'm walking by a very trendy high ticket ladies fashion uh, because they don't sell any men's there so i'm being specific um t-shirt in the window is just a photo of the dance-off 
just the, a still from them, like the twist and the yep. little whatever the shuffle, little shuffle thing that Uma Therm is doing. That's it. But instantly recognizable, super iconic. Right. You know, it upsets me because it's on par with when band shirts became very trendy among people that don't actually listen to those bands. Justin Bieber wearing a Metallica shirt. Right. Right. A hundred percent. So Pulp Fiction soundtrack was something that I listened to a lot uh, when my dad was a part of those um, record clubs. Mm-hmm. Columbia House? BMG. Oh, BMG. Yeah. Yeah. And you I signed would, up for that so many times. Oh, my God. Because they always had you at like, you <laughs> they know, always wanted you back with 12 CDs for one cent. It's like, well, I might as well. Can you think of any movie that has better music matched to what's happening on screen than Pulp Fiction? No. And and Tarantino continues that trend. Continues it. Yeah. In every movie. The last one I can think of in recent memory that still is phenomenal is all the Kill Bill, like the Kill Bill one and two. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> yeah or the <laughs> yeah 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 that's and th- and that's bernard herman who composed that whistling song who was a composer of the psycho themes yeah and taxi driver um that's funny you say that i'll, I'll talk about a m- little bit more about that in a second okay thanks <laughs> thanks for playing <laughs> my number two it's another Kubrick. It's 2001: A Space Odyssey. Oh, that's one of. The, I mean, I mean, that's. You know, in terms of canon, that's like top ten of all time. Hell yeah! Um, but that didn't influence my my pick, and, mm-hmm. and I want to be specific about that. The commentary on the dependence on technology, and the lack of humanity that exists within the human characters, and it thinking that it's going to be 2001 from 1968 <laughs> the movie is filmed in such a way that um the sh- you know frame by frame like you you really believe that a lot of this is in space but he has not gimmicked it just enough for you to feel like it's unrealistic what a uh, what a dichotomy of what's going on on screen and the soundtrack mm-hmm Humanity seems quite lifeless as they exist in some sort of futuristic realm. And that speaks to the narrative. Hal becomes the most humanistic organism in the film. The AI technology that starts to figure out that there's something else at, at play with the, the mission. Then the last 20 minutes of that film is just a, <laughs> just a mind. Fun. Well, that's a that's a that last 20 minutes. Yes, is an art show. But outside of that, how else would you have filmed that? Yeah. How else do you try to depict being transported to another realm, another universe by beings that he decidedly did not show to us, which is also genius. I think that last sequence of Bowman seeing himself age, die, then be reborn as the star child at the end watching earth. Yeah. It's beautiful because it has such a commentary from so long ago about something that's current day. The last 20 minutes, like who would ever have thought of something like that? You know, you need a great filmmaker to really push the boundaries and you need to change the art form. Eventually, like eventually movies have to evolve. And it's funny that the movie's kind of about evolution, the next stages of evolution. And it's really about a filmmaker evolving. 
evolving the art form right. <laughs> past what it normally right. he took a chance and and you know it's one of the greatest films ever well, made what i what i think is really important especially about the uh the imagery of the monolith just the black box it is supposed to teach the monkey something in the beginning and they learn from it it's a yeah i i i thought my interpret or what i've read my interpretation is that once they see it they realize that there's things beyond them. So they re- it allows them to think outside the box, I guess. And kind of, you know, they look at the bones and it's like, oh, well, maybe what if the bones used this way? And let's smash this skull. Wait, these motherfuckers are trying to take our water. <laughs> <laughs> what if I use yeah. this bone <laughs> to crack their skull? So, and yeah. that's human evolution, violence. Right. Deep motherfucker right here. <laughs> Pretty sure that's what Kubrick said. Um, <laughs> What's my motivation? Your motivation is these motherfuckers right here trying to drink, drink my motherfucking water. Oh my god! Imagine. <laughs> but what the monolith means to me in that film is um, the film is the monolith. Ooh. So two thousand one is the monolith to us as the viewer. Yeah, definitely. Because the message that it means to those that encounter it in the film is exactly the same thing that you just touched on. You need to evolve some way. You need to raise the bar in a different direction. You need to try different paths. So um as a filmmaker, you're trying to say, Okay, let's try this instead. But if you look back on uh reviews and interviews of 2001 and its significance on other directors you wouldn't have star wars without 2001 space odyssey for sure right even like when you're thinking about ai like you know this isn't the same level but wouldn't have terminator without 2001 right (laughs) you wouldn't these films of our past are important and if they were a part of your childhood, great. If they weren't and they mean something to you now, even better. Because we're always evolving. We're always adapting. And if you don't, then you're stationary and you'll never grow. Prof- That's profound right there. Bop. <laughs> Bam. All right. So before you do number one. Yes. Should we do honorable mentions? Ooh, Just off the top of your head. I love that you said that because I do have an honorable mention. Of course mention. you would. And I was like, this could be my number five. Actually, this could be my number four. And what's funny is I, because there's so many movies you forget about, but I just watched this one the other day and it could be my top, like top, it's definitely my top 10, but my honorable mention. And I guess it's kind of outside of the nostalgia realm because this movie's a little more recent. It's still, I think like 2001, which is... 19 years ago at this point, which is insane. <laughs> wow. I actually didn't take time to think about that. <laughs> but so, yeah, honorable mention for me is David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Wow. That movie's like, I just love that movie so much. And maybe even more, maybe I like it so much too, is because I think around the second or third viewing, even without reading anything, I figured Mulholland Drive out. A lot of people, still say the movie's like nonsense and it's like the nonlinear things and nothing makes sense. And it, there's no, re- there's no real plot. There is, there is a real plot. Do you, do you want me to, I don't want to go into it right now, but I figured Mulholland drive out and I love that movie so much. The app it uh, for atmosphere alone, it's just amazing. It's just like a dreamscape and the weird sounds and the out of the focus poles and the weird distorted and the kind of surreal characters that kind of, don't operate on any kind of normal plane of existence. They, they kind of exist in that 
you know, that space that's just like right in the subconscious. I don't know. It's hard to explain Mulholland Drive, but um, yeah, every, I just love that movie. I just watched it the other day. It was amazing. Right. Do you have any other honorable mentions? Just without even have to oh, dig man. into Oh, okay. Uh, Back to the Future. Uh, that movie, that's the childhood. Like when you talk about the Goonies, it just makes me think of movies like Back to the Future. Uh, and then going even back further, uh, I just watched this the other day on Disney Plus, Sword in the Stone. Wow, that's a deep cut, actually. Sword in the Stone. I, I had that on VHS. I had a lot of Disney on VHS growing up. And uh, the one, yeah, for some reason, the ones that hit me the most were, I mean, I loved Sword in the Stone. I loved like young King Arthur and the fact that he could at the very end, he pulls that, he pulls that sword out. He doesn't even know the significance of it. He's just so pure of heart. Like <laughs> what a great story that is. Yeah. Um, the little, Mer- the little mermaid. I mean, when I'm, when I'm thinking about my favorite Disney movies ever, like being a kid, I think I watched the little mermaid and the sword and the stone most. Okay. Yeah. What about you? Well, um, I already touched on psycho. That's definitely up there. Um, I'll probably be remiss that I didn't include that in my list at some point, maybe. <laughs> but you did, you did talk shit about the remake, though. As as of 2020, <laughs> January 2020, um, yeah, Psycho did not make it into my top five, but uh, the 1960 Psycho is fantastic. Um, yeah, I mean, what more can you say? We, we don't need to. It's Psycho. It's to me Hitch, Hitchcock's best film, and it's almost it's almost a perfect film when I think about it. You know. Uh, I mean, the acting, some of the acting is a little hammy, but that's just of the time. Like the, the, de, the detective. Yeah. That kinda, Arbogast. Yeah. He's just, you know, he's just, William H. Macy. Actually, that's one of the best parts about the remake is William H. Macy as Arbogast. That is- I've already mentioned that I like big monster movies. Tremors is up there for childhood nostalgia. Uh, not a great movie, not a good movie, but it's for that. Is, it, it's something for me. When I was younger, going back to the video store discussion, um, if it wasn't for having larger-than-life posters and a horror movie section that made me suspicious to even walk through the threshold of, if you didn't have covers like Tremors, you wouldn't have my interest and a child's curiosity of, like, that looks pretty scary. I actually kind of want to watch that. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's that it's that lure of wanting to be scared, but seeing something so inhuman and unrealistic. Yeah, that just lures you in. Like I love that. Another childhood honorable mention. Um, I cannot, I cannot say that I cannot complete a Christmas season without watching it. But I actually cannot complete a year without watching it. At least once is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. <laughs> I almost, for some reason, I thought you were going to say Home Alone. But yes, Na- National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. He's like one of the most good-intentioned characters of all time. Like he's a he's like a wa- he's a dad joke personified. Hell like yeah. he's just so chipper and he wants the best for his family, but he's just kind of like he's kind of a goofball and he's kind of a fuck up. But you know, you love him. He's you lovable. Love- <laughs> Clark Griswold. Yeah. Okay. Number one. All right, here we go. Uh, you kind of, kind of, I kind of spoiled it. You will, cause you mentioned Bernard Herman and there was a little bit of a spoiler. Uh, so my number one, now this goes back again to not my blockbuster video days, but there was a point, uh, a summer where I lived with my dad in Moncton and I didn't know anybody. Like I just kind of, I had a job, but I was just like going to spend the summer in Moncton 
and I kind of wandered around and I uh, went to the different video stores and music world in the mall and I would just buy movies and watch them. So this movie hit me at just such a perfect time of just like, you know, I didn't know anybody. I was kind of lonely, wandering aimlessly. Uh, so my number one is a perfect storm of everything that is movie making. It's perfect director, perfect actor, perfect screenwriter, perfect uh, score composer. And it's Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. Yes. Uh, it it's always. It, I think I'm trying to think if I've ever not thought of it as my as the greatest movie ever made. But I don't know something about this movie. Um, I mean, I, 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 like I said, it spoke to me at a perfect time. But it's just I'm such an interesting character study. And this goes back to what I was saying about Bad Lieutenant. Um, I just love kind of force of nature movies where we get to follow just one character. And we're almost, you know, not exactly their POV, but we just follow them as they, you know, we're, we're propelled into action with them. Like we have no choice but to kind of walk alongside them. And Travis Bickle's one of the, just one of the greatest anti-heroes characters of all time, um, played by one of the, I mean, obviously one of the greatest actors ever, Robert De Niro. Uh, but again, again, this movie just plays into my love of greatiness. Uh, you got New York City, one of the greatest movie location cities ever committed to film you got uh robert de niro one of the greatest actors ever you got martin scorsese a director who at the time just really had you know nothing to not nothing to lose but everything to prove for himself um i don't know just a perfect storm of a movie uh and a perfect movie my favorite movie of all time taxi driver number one taxi driver is a great one um my number one is not only regarded as one of the greatest films of all time, genre and all time, but it was also my gateway into film and being mystified by film. And I have it tattooed just like I do on the other on entries two and three. And if you know me, is it exists from my knee down on my left leg. It's Jaws. Oh, Spielberg. Well, it's not just Spielberg. It's Jaws. And I was five. And my dad told me, you should watch Jaws. Highly regarded film. So we rented it. I remember watching that alone. And... I don't remember much of the film from that viewing other than the last act of that film where they are fishing and, you know, you've gone actually over half of the film before you see the shark head on. So the 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 first emergence, you know, I can go slow ahead. Come on down and chump some of this mm-hmm. shit. And then you see the shark come up through the the surface. That's when my interest and my memory starts. And for a non-human like character, one of the greatest character entrances of all time. Hell yeah. <laughs> but I think this is also important. Um, you'll run into people uh, of different generations, maybe, and different appreciations of film, and with no offense to them, and they will say, well, that shark looks pretty fake. But all shark films look fake. Yeah. But how are we supposed to know? Because none of us are next to a shark that close. <laughs> I know. You're going to get a real shark to be in your movie? Like, yeah, yeah. And are you going to make it look menacing like, you know, like it is supposed to be Freddy? It is supposed to be Jason? You know, like this film, um, 
it used it used exactly what it needed to to tell a very important story and to build tension and it is a product of the shark not working in the water so because the mechanics of the shark did not work in the frigid waters when they were filming they just went ahead and they filmed other scenes they filmed pov of the shark and in combination of that happy accident with John Williams' score of, well, they say two notes, but let's be honest, it's three notes. It's a little more than two notes. Yeah, yeah. It's E and F, and then the boom at D. Uh, but in any case, uh, that that created so much more. That did for, you know, 70s monsters and horror and beyond what we were talking about with um, what does the last 20 minutes of 2001 a Space Odyssey really mean? Well, it doesn't need to mean too much more than here's the new standard of telling a movie. If you were to read film, you know, you're, you're looking at film through like a literary sense. Jaws is very simple. It's a very simple movie. It's a shark who's terrorizing a, a local, you know, beach and area and a very stressed out <laughs> chief of police. And, um, Ugh, and that gross mayor that I hate. Oh, come on. He was so great in that, though. But he's he such was- a terrible person. He's just like the only thinking of the, the only thinking of the, the tourist dollars. He's not thinking That's right. of the actual people. That's right. Well, we will be open <laughs> yeah, yeah. on the 4th of July. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I guess I get it, but come on. Man. Yeah, yeah. Jaws. But, uh, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just like you had said about Taxi Driver to you. Jaws is a, is a perfect storm of its own storytelling mm-hmm. and because it's so simple and effective and, and the absence of the shark to build tension for when you finally see it, the shark is, is not as shocking as the sequence that unfold. Everything makes sense. You're watching it. You're seeing them hunt it. And then when the shark, you know, kind of counteracts and, and, you know, eats Quint, everything just starts making sense. Sure. The animatronics might have been different in 1970, especially in cold waters. But that's besides the point. It's framing. It's storytelling. That's what it is. A simple movie told beautifully and effectively. The movie still ranks highly on movies you must see of all time. So uh, from a canon perspective, it is still very high. But for me, if it wasn't for Jaws, I wouldn't have been into watching film from a very close perspective. submersive kind of uh, perspective. Mm -hmm. Like I love getting lost in a good film. And if you don't like jaws, that's fine. But you know, that feeling of when, when it's good, it's good. Mm -hmm. You know, like you can't beat a good movie, Mm -hmm. that feeling. Anyway, jaws is that to me to this day. If you started a line, I'm going to finish it for you. I've watched that hundreds of times. I know I've watched it hundred times, not dozens, hundreds. I know I've watched it. I think what's also amazing about Jaws, like you were saying, a perfect storm of, uh, I mean, you have a great, uh, obviously a great filmmaker uh, with a lot to, at that point, a lot to prove. Um, But it's interesting how, like, let's talk, uh, it's, you know, talk about fate, talk about destiny, uh, the movie gods, whatever you want to call it. The fact that the, the shark they wanted to have in the movie did not work. Like, is it, it's almost fate that it didn't work because it made it better. In a way, the suspense when that buoy pops up, 
you know Jaws is there. You don't see him, but he's there. You know, it's it's amazing. Well, it's the it's the score. And, and the score as well. It's if you hear the score, you know it's there. Mm-hmm. Right? So, I mean, you could probably do multiple episodes. You could probably do a whole course on Jaws. But Jaws is my definitive best film all time. Childhood or not, Jaws is it. <clears throat> Love it. That's a great film. Great pick. Well, thanks for listening in. That was our discussion on our top five movies. Join us next week when we talk about our top five albums. Tell us what your favorite movies are. Matter of fact, tell us what your favorite albums are. Tell us your favorite nostalgic moments that take you back to you sitting in your very first theater experience. I'm Matt McGraw saying we're going to need a bigger boat. And I'm Kyle Smith. Are you talking to me? I'm Lisa. And I'm Agnes. And together, we are Sass and Sips, a watch rewatch podcast. We want to personally invite you to check out our podcast, where we'll be discussing TV shows from two perspectives. One who has seen the show before. And one who's not so sure. While we drink a lot. I mean, like a lot, a lot. <laughs> Every season, we will focus on a new show. And for our first season, we have chosen the iconic show Lost. We hope that you will come over and check us out. We can be found on your favorite podcast platform or at sassandsips.com. If you're down for drinks, friends, and television, then make sure you listen and subscribe. Because we're down for all of it. Yes. So listen with your bestie, open your favorite bottle, and sip and sass with Sass and Sips. Stoner Chicks. We're four friends who met through comedy and bonded through weed. I'm Grace Penzel. I'm Kayla Teal. I'm Stephanie Thompson. I'm Phoebe Richards. If you love smoking weed and laughing with your friends, this podcast is for you. Weekly episodes will drop on Fridays starting April 2nd. So subscribe now to Stoner Chicks wherever you get your podcasts. Coming to your favorite podcatcher soon.